0: Well, Joey, how are you doing this afternoon?
1: Hey, I'm doing great, happy to be on.
0: Absolutely, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. Do you mind giving us a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in?
1: Sure, my name is uh, Joseph Politano. I'm a self-employed, self-described economics uh, expert and data analyst. I write a, a newsletter called the Prickitas on on Substack. Uh, that's my full-time job and it has been my full-time job for a whole two months now um, So I've have been writing for about a year and a half uh, and very recently took the leap to make this uh, my my full-time gig and most of what I focus about focus on online is trying to do uh, data analysis of the macro economy with like a special focus on labor markets and the Federal Reserve. Very, very nerdy way to say uh, I, I do charts about macro uh, and try to keep that as fun as possible. <laughs>
0: I love it. I love it. well, i I want to get us kicked off and 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 ask you this. and and I hate to I like my episodes to kind of be timeless and stay in the test of time. But I am curious about the current moment. Um, what is going on with labor markets right now? Um, it seems like we we had a jo- uh, strong jobs report again, despite, you know, uh, Jay Powell doing everything in his power to to jack up rates. Uh, what What is going on with employment markets at the moment?
1: Um a, a lot. I think it uh is has genuinely been uh, one of the craziest times. For global labor markets um, and especially labor markets in the US, um, the way I try to I've tried to contextualize things in sort of a backwards-looking fashion is that um, most high-income nations, there are some exceptions, most high-income nations had some combination of like a furlough program, or they were really good at uh, blocking the spread of COVID. The US had neither gotcha. of those things. <laughs> so in in the uk where you know there was a lot of COVID spread there was less unemployment because of these furlough schemes you're keeping people attached to jobs uh in the u.s there was a a lot of people who were let go at the onset of COVID. you don't have that strong employment protections didn't have this furlough scheme like uh just was something that was not in federal government's capacity period um and so you had this big dispersion of cash to households especially to Households in need at the start of the pandemic. And you had uh, the sort of low rate environment, all of which was necessary to get like employment levels and uh, labor income. I'm a big fan of like looking at total labor income as a big economic indicator to get that back on trend. Um, What that meant is you had a big downward push on growth. just to get back to trend you needed like a big upward push on growth so um, over the last couple years we're sitting here now in 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 march of 2022 we've seen really massive upward push uh and by basically the start of this year start of 2022 um the strength of that economic momentum uh, that was necessary to bring the labor market back also caused a lot of inflation and so story of 2020 2021 was fighting like the downturn the story of 2022 is definitely all about inflation fighting um, and you have this very interesting um interesting dynamic in my mind where the fed's been tightening monetary policy since the start of this year that's definitely manifested in like worse financial conditions um but maybe less bad than people expected and Uh, the worst financial conditions have not really manifested as um unemployment you've seen slowdowns in employment growth i i don't want to like understate say there was no impact you've definitely seen big slowdowns in in employment growth and a little uh, uh a slowdown in wage growth especially at the the lower end of the wage distribution um but no rise in unemployment yet And so the big question that we're sitting at now is like, okay, is uh, is employment gonna hold up? Is it just a lagging indicator from the rate hikes that have already happened? Um, What's the chance of like a recession in 2023? Uh, And we're sitting actually, like if you're looking at some of the um, big sectors, so like truck transportation, which is usually an early early sign because a lot of uh, these are small operations that's been like stagnant like warehousing has been stagnant. a lot of the uh, consumer goods employment has been stagnant but a lot of other stuff has held up really well so it's it's a crazy moment to say the least
0: where do you think uh we go from here do you think recession is likely in 2023
1: uh i will i will defer to the like nerdy meta forecasters who say yes um i haven't checked in like a week but the last time i checked the like meta forecast was something like 60 70 chance of a recession in 2023 and like 80 percent chance of sometime before 2024 those are not fun numbers um i think so far part of the reason you know we we have seen um We've seen like the slowdown manifest less as drops in employment, just because, um, there's been so much demand so much like latent demand for labor. Uh, and I think really the chance of a recession and if a recession happens, the depth of it is going to depend on like, do we see a rise in unemployment? And and the other thing I'll say is like, I'm a big don't fight the fed kind of guy. You know, if, if the Federal Reserve is saying they want something, they are going to get it most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> they right now say that they want like a 1% increase in the unemployment rate. Um, and they, the forecast, it's not like it's one of those things where like we're not saying we want this, but the median forecast is that the unemployment rate should be 1% higher under optimal monetary policy next year. That's functionally a recession. You know, you've never Not seen a... that that rise in unemployment rate without a recession. So, uh, that's uh, that's the worry. I think, um, like I said, I think people look at people look at, understandably, you know, you say a sixty percent chance of a recession next year. People are like, oh, that's horrible, which it very much is. I don't want to understate that, but that mm-hmm. also means that there's a forty percent chance that it doesn't happen. You know, right. so. Uh, like I said, crazy moment right now.
0: Still sizable, still sizable. Uh, you know, if a layperson is listening to this podcast and and, and and you tell them something like, okay, like the Federal Reserve wants the unemployment rate to go up, it, it almost sounds like a, you, it, it, like, um, it's a, you know, if I told us that to someone on the street, they'd be like, what the heck? You know, these technocrats. You know, they're trying to make my life worse. Trying to make more, like, like, can you like just walk through like why you know that that that's a good thing at some level.
1: Uh. I wouldn't I – w- I don't know if I would say um, it's a good thing. And, and if I'm taking off my own personal hat, if I'm saying what yeah. what would someone at the Federal Reserve say, what they would say is that uh, inflation is really high. Um, yeah. The only way to get inflation down in the short term is to induce like real economic pain. So you're saying gotcha. there's some level of real growth. You have to reduce that or get it a little bit negative – um, in order for inflation to come down and you know a period of lower negative economic growth is going to induce an increase in the unemployment rate it, it, there's a variance between people who view this as like incidental you know on the fed some people will say we're raising rates to slow the economy and that will create unemployment and there's another side that says, we're raising rates to create unemployment, which will lower inflation. It's like, is it incidental to the target or is it like causal to what you're trying to accomplish? Uh, there's not, as, I wouldn't say there's a steady, 100% agreement on that within the Fed, but there's pretty close agreement that, uh, like I said, there's going to have to be some increase in the unemployment rate. Uh, and the bill from, like, what Jerome Powell would say is that the only way you can have a stable, long-run uh, growth in the labor market is to get rid of inflation in the short term. If you just kind of keep pushing the problem off, it's going to require... Like, yeah, it's like you get take the small medicine now or you take the, the big medicine later. Um, like, I, I'm not 100% on board with that right now, especially because if you think about it from a purely from looking at the unemployment rate, right? The unemployment rate was like 3.5% in 2019. And uh, I don't know if you were around for 2019, but (laughs) everybody was freaking out because the Fed was raising rates and people were worried about a recession then, and inflation was low, relatively speaking. So I don't think that, uh, you know, 4.5% is necessarily going to... Um, or, like, I don't think 3.5% unemployment right now is more inflationary than it was in 2019. I think what they worry about principally is, like, growth in income and spending, which was really high in 2021 and is, like, slowing down now. That's what they're kind of focused on.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. That makes sense. How, how would you rate the Fed's response to the pandemic, all things
1: considered? Uh, I... I think it's obvious, especially in hindsight, that, like, um, they waited too long to raise rates. Um, I think it's difficult, like, ex-ante to look at things, you know, and say, how much would they have shifted? If I was in charge of the Fed at the time, I would have made the same mistakes, right? I probably actually would have done even worse than they did, um... And I think part of it was just, like, there is, has been a lot of chaos. And I think coming off the back of the 2008 recession, which was consistently worse than people had forecast, and the forecasted, forecasts were bad as they were happening, uh, the, the, the MO was like, we just can't, you know, can't let this repeat no matter what. Yeah. Um, and I think it would have been a really difficult sell in like August of 2021, unemployment rate is still elevated. You know, most people haven't been vaccinated to say, okay, now we start raising rates, even though that probably would have been about the right time to to do it. Um, Yeah, I think it's also just that things have moved so fast. Um, Normally the Fed you know they have this opportunity where they can they raise rates a little bit they watch how the market reacts they watch how the economy reacts they could say this was a little too much too little and then they you know yeah. bounce back and forth from there 2019 as a counter example you know they raised rates too much um, I think if you asked Jerome Powell he would agree with you on that sentiment they that's why they backed off in 2019 started cutting rates again they were like okay there's too much but the point was that they had two years there where they was, they raised rates in 2019. They hit a point where they're like, Oh, it's too much. And then they reversed in late 2019 up until early 2020. There was no real, it was no grand punishment for that. Like misstep. <laughs> right. Um, compared to the missteps in, in 2020, 2021.
0: That makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, I, I, am curious, you know, how do you feel about nominal GDP targeting? Are I a fan.
1: Yeah, I, I am generally a fan. I think, um, I, I wouldn't call myself a zealot, so nominal not GDP. Not a sumner maxi. Right, not a maxi, <laughs> but a fan. Um, so nominal GDP targeting for people who don't know is this idea: like, okay, there's a gross domestic product is the sum of all output in the economy. Basically, it's taking total number of dollars spent, and what you should really be looking at is like a growth rate in dollars spent, not a growth rate in prices, because you know if you have four percent. If usually the target is like 4 or 5%. If you have 4% growth in nominal GDP, you think like 2% of that is inflation, 2% of that is productivity. Um and in a situation where like uh the inflation goes up to 4% and you're NG- you're still on GDP target, you're like, "Oh, we're fine. It's just, you know, we just had a real sh- economic shock." And in the converse sense where like inflation dips below target, You're saying, oh, and GDP is fine. We just had like a productivity boom or you, you know, oil prices went down or whatever. Um, I think my disagreements come maybe a little more technically with like how you do this in real time uh, because the GDP data is like, uh, it's not the most robust data set as it comes out just because there's so many things that go into it, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so Skanda Amarnath, who's a great friend of mine, he works in Employee America, he um, worked out this framework for looking at gross labor income. So he's saying, OK, we, we believe that NGDP, total spending, total income in the economy is what really matters, what the Fed really controls, what they really target, or what they really should target. Um, but wages and, and labor income are the greatest share of that GDP. You know, it's like 60 percent or so. Uh, yeah. And it's the most robust share compared to profits, you know, imports, exports, government spending, which is all can get really messy really quick. So that's what we should focus on. Um, and I think it's very funny because if you were on an NGDP framework, right, you would have said raise rates in August of 2021. If you were in a gross labor income framework, you would have said what the Fed's doing is basically correct maybe slightly too loose you know so gross That's labor right. income basically just back on trend you're saying like it's 1% above trend maybe 2% above trend depending on what measure you use um, which is pretty crazy <laughs> considering now you have like 8% inflation yep. um but you know i i it's the viewpoint is is the core thing you should be targeting like ngp or should you do go even narrower and target uh labor income And I think the other argument for labor income stuff is just that, like, if you think about hysteresis, so this idea that you can have a short-term damage to the economy that becomes a permanent scar. So someone gets unemployed, and because they're unemployed, they don't, you know, learn on the job, because they don't learn on the job. Now you've permanently reduced their wages. Um, Gotcha. Those, you know, hysteresis components, they show up in labor, mostly. And they show up a little bit in, like, investment, but they're really not going to show up in, like, government spending or 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 like corporate profits you know gotcha so that's that's my disagreement is more technical than it is conceptual if that makes sense
0: Makes sense. makes a lot of sense. Um, Can you talk a little bit about hysteresis and uh, this term you throw around a lot, which I I, I have not been super familiar with, which is gross labor income. I I really like this term. Can you just talk about what it is and why it's important? Sure.
1: Sure. So um, I'll start with gross labor income, because I think it's the the easier one. So the the base, it's it's really basic. uh, Nominal gross domestic product is saying, take all the spending in an economy and just add it together. Nominal gross labor income is just saying take all the wages and salaries in an economy, add them together. You know, what's the growth rate there? So you're looking at really what's the growth rate in employment and what's the growth rate in wages. Uh, And like I said, the conceptual idea of why this is a little more robust is because you think the Fed has more direct control over um, that like core demand aspect. And you think that core demand aspect has more influence over consumer prices. Most people who are, you know, uh, most people who are workers are spending a, a lion's share of their income. So if their income goes up, their spending goes up. If their income goes down, their spending will go down. And that's almost like a rule of nature in the way that it isn't for other sectors of the economy. And just like I said, in real time, you can look at how wages and salaries are evolving, how employment is evolving much faster than you can, how GDP is evolving. Um, And so the idea of hysteresis is is like kind of interesting economic concept. Success begets success. Right, it's success begets success and failure begets failure. Um, And so if you're thinking about, like let's think about 2008 with the the auto industry, right? So you have a downturn, you have all these car companies go bankrupt, Um, they get rescued by, by the federal government you have this bailout package but fundamentally like demand for cars had just crashed because the economy crashed Um, right and because demand for cars crashed you didn't get any investment in like new car plants in the united states and because you didn't get new car plants you didn't get people trained in you know manufacturing assembly uh, for cars in the u.s you didn't get more engineers you didn't get all this stuff and now you know, ten years later, if you look at a chart of like US uh auto manufacturing output, there's like it's not just that there's a clear drop, it's that there's like a permanent level shift downwards. Got it. Uh and that's what hysteresis is. Some people will talk about this also in the reverse, like the success begets success thing, which is like, um, maybe solar would maybe be a good example. Like you think the these um you pumped all this investment into like, especially in Germany, you pumped all this investment into renewables, into like green energy and solar, and that uh you know, you, you push down the experience curve so the costs get cheaper, so you hire more people because it becomes more profitable, so the costs get cheaper again, so your market builds, so people become more enamored with your product and you've got this like big positive snowball rule roll- rolling. Right. Um I think that's rarer in the sense people talk about it less. Uh, But it's also, I think, in my opinion, just as important.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. So you really want to avoid things where you, you know, if you have a, there could be problems where you get these bad downward spirals where you can permanently damage. And you want to avoid that kind of permanent damage, especially in the labor market where, you know, it's people we're talking about and they have permanent shocks. There's a study I read a while back about, you know, people who graduate uh, during a recession, you know, like have these permanent kind of income like uh shifts downward just because they have a harder time finding a job initially yes
1: exactly that's that's hysteresis. that's like the best example you can get
0: very cool very cool um, i want i want to move on a little bit now and talk about interest rates so we recently had on um, paul schmelzing from yale do you know paul uh, I,
1: I don't think i do unfortunately gotcha. so
0: He's an economic historian. Wrote this really interesting paper. I really enjoyed. It's called uh, "The Super Secular Decline of Interest Rates." Oh, Okay, rates. yes,
1: I do know his paper.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, do you buy this notion that uh, we are just experiencing this kind of long run, eight hundred year trend and decline of interest rates uh, with you know variation, right? So it's noisy. So it's going up right now. But do you think we like we just face you know permanent kind of lower permanent lower interest rate environment? Where, you know, squirrels perhaps always have to pay someone to you know, hold their nuts or something like that. You can't just – it's like the national state is not, um, you know, positive interest rates. Uh,
1: I So I – this is definitely an area where my thinking is a lot mushier. This is, like, um, where I am more open to debate. I am not the biggest fan of – this idea that we have, like, per, like 800-year decline, yeah. secular decline in interest rates. I do buy the, like, 50-year secular decline in interest rates, 50-year-long decline in interest rates. Gotcha. Uh, based off the idea that just, one, you have lower productivity growth in most high-income nations nowadays. Two, the, like, lower and middle-income nations that you had... Um, especially in like the, the seventies, eighties that had pretty substantial growth also petering out, um, three, the, the global population growth is, is lower. So if you think about like the, the very raw idea of like more people require more homes and, and cars and, yeah. uh, oil whatever, and that is inv- requires capacity investments that put upward strain on, on real interest rates. So lower populations should ameliorate that and that you especially have older populations and longer lifespans. So you have this big stretch of time where lots of people in um, high-income countries are retired for 20 years or 30 years um, and they have a big pile of savings that they are drawing down very slowly and conservatively Um, and all of that puts downward pressure on interest rates so if you look at like it's it's actually kind of funny in, in the long-term sense that uh everybody's panicking about the fed causing a recession and like the five-year real interest rate is like 1.8 percent it that that's not a lot by historical standards right, right, right. <laughs> but and, and the panicking is not again i'm not trying to um not trying to like disgrace the, the panicking the panicking is is a little justified i'm saying that A 1.8% real interest rate can wreck a modern economy just because that's, you know, secularly uh, interest rates are are pretty low. Um, I will say, I think the lesson of the pandemic has been, you know, when there's like the uh, market monetarist insight where you're talking about if interest rates are high, usually it means that they were too low in the near past. You know, you have high inflation, now you're trying to fix it. Um, and right. that's like the environment that especially the United States is in right now. Interest rates are high primarily because inflation is high, primarily because interest rates were too low in, you know, 2021, uh, 2020 maybe. Um, the opposite of like the 2009, 2010 thing where interest rates were low because they were too high previously. Um, so we just learned the inverse lesson <laughs> each time. But I think if you're looking at like, you know, I, I, people, some some perspective is if you look at like the Austrian century bond. So Austria issues a 100 year bond, um, nice. which by the way, greatest deal of all time. They issued that at like 1% <laughs> interest rates or less. It was, was ridiculous. Amazing. But it's like, tra- I think if I look it up right now, it's trading at like 2% right now. So in the euro area, people expect short term interest rates to be under two percent cumulatively for like the next 98 years that's wow. really low and those are nominal rates so you're thinking the real rate should be somewhere basically at zero um or lower there are some people who think so this is like the Goodhart thesis there's this idea that yeah. like okay people were getting older which was you know uh, lowering interest rates but that was mostly because of population decline and mostly because people are having fewer kids. So if you think about dependency ratios, so the ratio of like workers to non-workers, yeah. uh, the the dependency ratio was going down just because there were much less children. Now they will be going up because there will be much more, you know, older retired people. That's yeah. going to be a positive, uh, that's going to put positive upward pressure on real interest rates. You know, so... Right now, we're in the downward phase, but in, like, 2030, 2040, we'll be in the upward phase. That's, like, the only kind of decent counterpoint I've seen to this idea. I'm not... I don't think I buy it, both because I think, like, lifespans are getting longer uh, and because I think, just in general, we're losing, like, the productivity growth of places like China as they get... Reach, like, high-income nation status. And... I'm not I, at the core level. I'm not sure I buy the thesis, but like that's the interesting counter thesis uh, I've um, heard, and it is something where I'm like not a hundred percent in my thinking on.
0: I love it. I love it. Do you have any ideas what happened to TFP growth in 19, you know 1971? Like what what the heck happened and, and why did it happen? Do you have any any thoughts there? Um,
1: <laughs> you're not gonna like my answer. No small questions here. Uh, Uh, So TFP, total factor productivity growth. Kind of (laughs) fake. Nice. (laughs) Oh, I love this.
0: I love this. I love this. You got to talk about this.
1: So the idea is like, okay, you have an input of labor, an input of, of capital, and you get an output, you know, you want to be able to use units of labor and capital more efficiently to generate units of output. Total factor productivity is really hard to measure in like an optimistic sense uh, and and conceptually it's like conceptually it's rough uh, because of the kind of stuff that you're thinking about like the Cambridge capital controversy if you know this where you're like okay the Cambridge capital cons- controversy in the short version is is capital like a thing that you can measure or is it just a byproduct of like future, um, I see. it's just a byproduct of future output of consumption right so is a factory valuable as like measured in terms of inputs in steel and concrete or is it just valuable as a sense that it can produce factory goods that you can then sell and you're estimating the future yeah. value of factory goods uh i come down on on the factory goods side right so you're you're saying capital is valuable and really you're measuring its value based on what it can do not what it's made of um, and as a result when you try to do this like what's it made of calculation you end up with a lot of wonky results so if you look at labor productivity right so you're saying just ignore capital pretend it doesn't exist <laughs> pretend it's fake <laughs> um, and say for an hour of work what does the average person create that is in The United States went up about two and a half percent a year consistently through you know long, long run through recessions through inflation through a lot of chaos from like the start of the post war period in 1950 to 2008. So, like, that's a, a story that doesn't stop in 1971. So, if you look Got at it. labor productivity growth, it's still you know increasing at basically the same rate as if you, you really wouldn't even notice the gap in 1971 except for the recessions that happened in the 1970s um and then you hit 2008 and then it like drops one a one percentage it's like brutal gotcha. drop um so that's where i think like the the discontinuity is it's like po- pre-2008 post-2008 not pre-1971 post-1971 um and that's also i think where the, the more meaningful distinction is in terms of like the global economy where people uh, I don't think people in the nineteen nineties were like, Wow, what happened to total factor productivity? <laughs> that's not my interpretation of how people felt in the nineties. That is Ray, my interpretation Ray, Ray. of how people felt in like the two thousand tens were like, why does everything why does everything feel bad? You know, yeah. I can't articulate fully why like you know, it's better people in high income nations who are saying, My life is worse than my parents or it's worse yes. than I expected that's something that I think really is a post-2008 story, not a post-1971 story.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. This is really fascinating. So I, I'm curious, uh, what do you think changed post-2008? Was it was it just like, you know, populations just getting older? Is it something else? Like, what do you think is going on there?
1: Um, I, I think the post-2008 story is really like a, um, a hysteresis story, like on the scale so, oh, of... Oh, so it is.
0: A, it's just like... So it's all the Fed's fault if they had followed Scott Sumner and like <laughs> loosened it, you know what I mean, or something. <laughs> well, if they'd only targeted nominal GDP, we'd be fine.
1: I think. Um, I think if you could have gotten so nominal GDP growth back on trend, it, you would feel a lot better about the state of the economy. I think people. Really? Um, I think the Scott Sumner like the counterpoint to the Scott Sumner thing, and this is like the great, uh, yeah, like market monetarist versus like um bond trader kind of debate like fin twit bond trader kind of debate it's like yes okay yes the fed controls all these nominal variables like i agree but the the um the bond trader side is like oh they, they it's like intermediated by banks and by credit and when you know the the banking system collapsed in 2008 like they had to fix the banking yeah. system. That was the problem, right. not what interest rates were. Uh, and the, the other side is, oh, it was, it was interest rates. I think right. the, like, um, I lean more towards the like Fintuit bond trader side. Interesting. <laughs> I, I need to come up with a better representative <laughs> than yeah. Fintuit bond traders. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll say the shadow banking side. So I lean more shadow towards banking. the shadow yeah. banking side. Partially just because this was this was like a global phenomenon. It's it'd be really weird if everyone suddenly messed up in the exact same way at the exact same time. <laughs>
0: yes, yes. Usually involved.
1: there's a reason why that happens, and I think part of the reason, exacerbated by some of the bad decisions from uh, an interest rate point of view, was just that like the credit uh, side was totally messed up. Um, gotcha. And like it, so, if you were to drag that productivity chain out further, you know. But look, at pre-war United States, you see that same kind of productivity dip that doesn't recover in, like, the 1930s, you know, it, during the Great Depression. I see. Um, Gotcha. And both of those stories are, in my mind, partially about, you know, credit systems failing and also partially about monetary policy being too tight and wrecking the economy because of that, partially exacerbated by the credit, partially exacerbated by um, the, the interest rate side. It's very funny to look back at like, especially in Europe, yeah. In like 2011, when uh, Trichet at the European Central Bank was like, "Let's raise interest rates." And you're like, "The unemployment rate's 10. percent <laughs> What are you doing?" Right. Um, exactly. And that, but that was like the the logic inside a lot of central banks. That's that's how, how they felt about the economy in 2008 or 2008. They were yeah. like, "Oh, we'll be at zero for like three years, then we'll be fine." Um, they very like that was a big underestimation on yeah. that
0: part kind of kind of kind of missed that um, i, I want to ask more about 1971 and sorry to harp on no, this
1: it's interesting
0: um okay cool I, I i find this infinitely fascinating uh and it's part of the inspiration for this, this podcast actually um when i got started on the on the journey so if tfp growth uh is um is fake. I, I, like, you know, t- total productivity, like uh, as a as a measure, is fake. Um, if we buy that, um, what about like the prices of essential goods that that seem to have skyrocketed since you know the seventies? Like, so I think of like healthcare, education, um, and you know housing is it just some kind of bumble effect thing where, you know, there's just like, we've reached some hard limits on, on productivity in certain sectors where it's just really hard to kind of automate the string quartet, um, you know, in person, you just, or is it something else going
1: on? Um, so just to walk back a little bit, the TFP thing, um, like I said, I don't want to mean that it's literally fake. I just want to mean that it's like the, I don't think it's a really good measure. It's it's not gotcha. the most robust yeah. measure, and I think it it leads to some misleading conclusions. Um, gotcha, but I think it, it, there's like an interesting debate, both because you can pinpoint a lot of changes that did happen in the real economy, especially around um, housing and healthcare, to the 1970s, uh, and also that like it's not like countries with significantly better uh, systems for administering these things aren't yeah. also struggling you know there's i i do think a lot of this is fundamentally like uh, like you said in as an economy gets wealthier people buy more services they buy less goods as a share of total consumption and what that means is like you know wages are the core input to um services if the productivity in, in manufacturing is going up so much you know you end up having to pay a lot more to pull workers away, um, or in a in a broader sense, you just get this specialized post industrial economy where most people consume services. They work in the services sector. Uh, the price of services goes up because the big, you know, input to the price of services is wages, uh, and that's still like a story where you know real um, output is going up. I think it's kind of funny when people are like. Yeah, there really hasn't been um, like, oh, has healthcare gotten better in the U. S. since the nineteen seventies? Like, yes, <laughs> yes, really? in a lot of ways, very much yes. Um, yes. And I, I don't want to like overdo it on that story because I think, especially in healthcare, this is, there's a lot of technological, um, there's a lot of technological advancement that will show up in higher productivity, better outcomes in the way people you know want it. Uh, to be. But fundamentally, there's a certain limit where you're like, okay, like long-term care requires a certain number of people per patient, and the price of long-term care will go up as wages go up, and wages go up in the long-term, so the <laughs> price of long-term care just you know, can't go down. Uh, right. And you'd expect it to occupy a, a larger share of people's budgets even to the extent that they're able to afford more of it you know makes sense uh and i think the land you know the 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 housing story is very yeah. obviously like peak us housing output was in the 70s um and it was getting annoyingly bad by like 2008 and then it got catastrophically bad after 2008 um, yeah. that's definitely a story where you could talk about like legal creep about nimbyism about like the post racial integration efforts to Constrain housing production as a a method to enforce segregation, all of which makes the housing stuff worse. But also, you know, fundamentally, if wages are going up, there is a limited amount of land. I wonder what's going to happen to the price of land. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And uh, so I, I, I do think it's one of those things where it's like, to some extent, a natural byproduct of how economies are structured, exacerbated by policy decisions in the US. Um, I see.
0: So that, that's kind of the answer to the story. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, uh, you know, going off of that, what is, you know, if, if we zoom out, what, what does the next century look like, do you think, for America? It seems like America is well, well positioned on the world stage. We have decent fertility, decent demographics compared to a lot of other developed nations. Um, what's your thought on, on the long run outlook for America?
1: yeah i think um i'm still bullish america i think um you know not to get all like hoity-toity about it but it's like if if you go abroad and talk to people um who live you know in in the vast majority of places will talk um happily about how much they like the united states how much they admire like the US institutions how much they want to move to the United States how much they view it as like the place to be um right. and i think like with the exception of maybe Canada and Australia which are functionally just too small to be um global players sorry right <laughs> uh <laughs> it it is still where um it is still like the hegemon and I don't see things that uh, I don't see a situation that challenges it right now. I think the big question mark is still China. I think it has been a, a series of big L's for like people who are bullish on Russia over the last like ten years. Oh. Um, unfortunately, for people in Russia, uh, I think people who were were worried about China, which I think is a worry if you care a lot about um global democratic freedom and rule of law and and democracy and all that good stuff Uh, also especially over the last year two years has been um a pretty bad situation right and so it's like if you're if you're looking at uh, the world as it is now the u.s is still the least bad option uh there's that quote somewhere where it's like I think it's funny because I'm in like the finance world where especially like when, when the Russian invasion happened and the US government froze the Russian central bank assets and you had all this drama about sanctions and stuff, people were talking about like our country's going to move away from the US dollar. And it's been right. a really funny year for that thesis because everyone <laughs> every major country on planet Earth has been panicking about not having enough dollars. <laughs> yes, yes. since February of 2022, <laughs> that has been the dominant theme. Of, like, it, worrying about your exchange rate compared to the dollar, worried about how your economy compares to the dollar, raising interest rates so you catch up with the Federal Reserve has been, like, the number one theme, uh, and people were, are much less concerned about, you know, the what the rise of China means for this and that. I think it's also, you know, uh, maybe, like, the 2015-2016 era of, like, peak... Um, international PR for China Yeah. where you look at like the, the belt and road investments are down a ton or like uh, Chinese Got foreign it. investment down a ton and, and just general people, you know, global opinion of China is down a ton. So yes. yeah, it's like I said, the, um, least, you know, comparatively least bad option. I am like bullish India, In the sense that I'm like optimistic about the long run trends in in growth, there, Um, by pure fact of population, you know, they're probably going to pass the U. S. in GDP sometime, Um, but I think that's still still a long ways away, Um, and you know, India's you know, much more free, much more democratic country, although, you know, I'm not the, the biggest fan of, like, the regression towards authoritarianism over the last few years. Uh, like, you know, compared to most countries on planet Earth is right. free, democratic. Um, and so I don't, you know, really worry about it, uh, except in the sense, in the same sense that I worry about, like, the United States' as political institutions being subject to failure and undemocratic right. and things like that makes sense it makes a lot of sense
0: um joey i i have one last big question here how did you originally get interested in um in blogging about macroeconomics
1: and uh you know how did you first get started um well it was like i think the first thing i wrote was june of uh 2021 so this was like peak pandemic boredom Mm -hmm um <laughs> so for me before before the pandemic i was a peace corps volunteer so i was working nice working abroad uh in uganda then i got bounced back to the u.s and i think there was a lot of people you know you were unemployed i didn't have a place to live at that time so you're like okay i gotta get all my ducks in order i gotta get a job I gotta get you know a place to live yeah you know, at that point i had i had all the ducks in order and they were in order for like six months and so now i was boredom was setting it <laughs> and i was like realizing, oh, oh I have you know things I'd like to say or things I'd like to share about um, the economy. And so that's when I started you know publicly trying to share those things. And I think writing and, and blogging is great as like an iterative process. you know um, You're writing, people are commenting or criticizing and you're updating what you write or you're you know getting better at how you communicate, things like that. Um, and shifting the things that you're interested in all that good stuff. Uh, and so over time I just, uh, tried to keep myself, you know, at first like one a week, um, then I eventually started doing like more, more frequent stuff. Um, and then it hit a point where I was like, okay, I have a lot to say. I don't have unlimited time to say it, especially when I'm working a full-time job. Yeah. Um. And I had the, the great privilege of, like, having people who, who truly care and, and were willing to listen and were interested in the same kind of random nonsense that I'm interested in. So I was like, okay, this is, you know, the time to do it. Um, if you, if I was just thinking, like, okay, if I don't do it now, there's going to be all these things I want to say that I'm never going to get the chance to say. All these, right. So I got to at least try it. And I've been very humbled by the response, you know, since I started doing this full time. Uh, and I'm very oh, happy now to be able to put out more interesting stuff to do, like, the kind of really in-depth research that I couldn't do when my time budget was 10 hours of a week. Right. Um, and I'm really enjoying, you know, just opportunities to be able to speak with people, things like this, where you you get to uh, have an interesting back and forth.
0: I love it. I love it. Well, Joey,
1: what's the next 10 years look like for you? Have you thought about it much? Oh, boy. Um <laughs> It's it's funny cuz a, per, a personal forecasting record is, is 0 out of 10. Never gotten anything right. <laughs> um, so if you would like if you go back at any point in the last like 5 years and tell me what where do you see yourself in 2 years? I would have gotten it wrong. Yeah. So I am trying to take things one day at a time. Um, I think the benefit of the benefit of like writing is you have a community of people who care about the same kind of things that you do. Um, And so, you know, I'm planning to take the writing stuff as, as far as I can go with it, but I'm also aware that there might be a time and a place where I want to do something else interesting. Um, And I have the very great privilege of having this uh, um, platform that I can use in that pursuit. But yeah. Right now, I'm just writing.
0: <laughs> it's great. It's great. It's a, real, it's a real superpower to have a community like that. Um, well, Joey, thanks so much
1: um, for coming on the show. Where can people find you? Where should we send them? So I am on Twitter most of the time. It's just at Joseph Politano or Joey Politano is the, the uh, actual username. I write a newsletter. Um, it's apricitas.io is the name of my substack. It's a K sound, but it is a C letter because that's how Latin works. So it's A-P-R-I-C-I-T-A-S dot I-O. Um, Good deal. And that's where all my writing is. You can also bother me on LinkedIn. I don't know.
0: (laughs) I love it. And I highly recommend the blog. It's really excellent. Um, Thanks so much, Joy. Yeah, really really
1: happy to be on. Thanks for having me.
0: Definitely. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives.